Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 129 of Smart Enough to Know Better. We're a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston. I'm Greg Waugh. And in this episode of Smart Enough to Know Better, fishing is so metal. But before we get to that, we have a really exciting interview with a gentleman named David Bell. David Bell is a nut farmer, but he's so much more than that. So let's jump straight into the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, Mr. David Bell from the Hidden Valley Plantation. Hello, David. Hello, Dan and Greg. Yay, I've been acknowledged. Greg's still in the corner. Greg's, Greg's on site today. I'm on site, that's right. You may know We don't have that weird delay. It's very exciting. <laughs> well, any weird delay is Greg's weird delay. <laughs> so, so, David, you are a macadamia nut farmer. That's right, yeah. I'm probably one of the few second-generation macadamia farmers. Oh, wait, Dan, mm, I'm a bit confused by this because you said that we we're just going to go nuts. I just uh, thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be about madness. Not at, well. It oh. might might still be. All these notes are useless. Now, is that uncommon? Because most people are third generation macadamia farmers and no, been doing it no, for ages, really. or just first and they're just like kids. For God's sake, don't go into macadamia nut farming yourself. <laughs> well, no, it's really more that uh, we started in the 1960s, so it's actually 50 years old. The farm, wow. the real boom in macadamia started in 1970s, 1980s. So there's actually so not you're ahead that many. of the you're ahead of the game. Yeah, there hasn't been time for a second generation. There's more coming through now. Yeah, all yeah, right. So they still they're still considered exotic. Is macadamia nuts considered an exotic nut? Yeah, they still are. They're not a commodity yet. Right. Which yeah, it's good for us. It's yeah, a, yeah. <laughs> so you can get in there. Okay, that's interesting. What's so good about macadamia nuts? Why would anyone? I, I like peanuts. I like pistachios. I, so what you go? Ah, but Greg, but macadamia they are the nuts. best flavored nut. Best flavored nut. Yeah. There you go. I don't think I'd go and get on board with that. Yeah, okay, yeah. there you go. Oh, they're very nice to eat. They've got a, not as strong flavor as some others, but it's the, the most pleasant. Ah, well, you'd want him to be a spokesperson for the nut that he grows. <laughs> you, you wouldn't you wouldn't want like fifty years of this farm where he's like, God, those people with the cashew farms. Oh, I wish I had cashews all the time. No, you go up there, you get bitten by ants all day in cashew, cashew farms. Oh, they, these. Green tree ants. That I'm are. hoping now we will start like a podcast battle, like like a like, <laughs> like a rap thing with with cashew nut people. That'd be excellent. Yeah, look, smart enough is laying the flag in macadamia country. We're, that's it. That's it. Is there competitiveness between the different types of nuts, or uh, does everyone just sort of get around and drink beer and be like laugh at the peanut people going, yeah, legumes? Not, not really. The tree nut people are all pretty solid. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> it's friendly competition, but there's a, there's a lot more demand than supply for all tree nuts Ooh, at okay. the moment. Yeah, just imagine that I'm from outer space and I don't really know it's what. Not a, hard, not a hard leap to make. <laughs> Shh, quiet, you. The, <laughs> and imagine that I wouldn't know what a macadamia. I've never seen one growing. Mm-hmm. Imagine, imagine a city boy like me has never has has no concept of where they come from. Are they milked from the macadamia cow? Like, what, what, how do they, uh, how do they come into existence? Well, they're a big subtropical tree. They've come from out of the rainforests of eastern Australia. So between roughly between okay. Lismore and Meribra is the original location of, of the variety of the, the species. Are so they- only. 
Very Australian small Aboriginals area. had macadamia nuts up until 200 years ago. Yeah, that's oh, right. So wow. it's, an Australian, it's an Australian plant? It's 100% Australian. Wow. This comes from around here. And it was probably, you know, once Australia was a giant rainforest and it's been shrinking, and so probably without human interference, another 1,000 years they would have been all been gone. We did a project, oh, it's 20 years ago now, where we went out seeking out the original, that's uh, called the germplasm, which is the in, in the wild trees yeah. with an, a, an idea to collect them for posterity. And there was only one or 2,000 trees that were wow. identified. Oh, my goodness. So, and then they're, they're in areas like Byron Bay and things where people want to put houses. So, and even during that project, which lasted about three years, there was a significant number that were bulldozed out. So, oh, nice. So yeah. before humans started like, helping out the macadamia and cultivating them for our own you know, benefit, but you know, it's helped the plants too, what was their main distributor of seed or nut? Or, or... I think probably Aboriginal people did distribute some because right. you find okay. some that are are out of their, their territory, as it were, and on ridges. So either a, a bird has picked it up and dropped it while they're flying yep. or probably more like the Aboriginal people collected a few, put it in there, and what are they called, dilly bags? Yeah, right. And there might have been a hole in that. And wow, so okay. Got some, so got spread. I, I know that That's cockatoos cool. go nuts for them. Yeah, they do. We yeah. have them hanging out in our tree. Because we've got a macadamia tree in the backyard. Oh. So David hasn't seen it yet. He'll it? probably go out there and just start chuckling. <laughs> just go, oh. <laughs> oh, what a sweet little macadamia tree. <laughs> that must be hard then. If you have to cultivate a nut that a species of large bird finds really delectable, that must be, <laughs> that must be hard to stop them. No, no, they're not, they're not really a major problem, the birds. Right, they, okay. they can be, but they do, they're not. Well, actually, rats is probably the biggest oh. Uh, oh. mammal rats. species. They, yeah. they like them. <laughs> and um, it's probably more before the nuts are developed because they've got a very hard shell. Once they're developed, they're, they're pretty safe. Right. Yeah. yeah, I actually like it when the cockatoos come by because they peel the outside thing off and they can't get into the nut inside. And I'm like, <laughs> jackpot, you've done the work for me. <laughs> okay, so they, so they grow from trees in bunches, he says. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. They're big trees. They're probably the ones, cultivated trees, you can get up to sort of 12 15 metres tall. Wow. Okay. And they're a big evergreen tree, which I think most other nut species are deciduous. That's what you get when it, when it started in the tropics of Australia, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You don't really get winter in That's Cairns. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's ever. And if you find them in the rainforest, I mean, they're almost impossible to identify. They're just a, a trunk that just goes up 20 metres. Oh, wow. That, yeah. That, so you're not gonna, I'm not getting that then. I'm, if I'm stuck in the, in the rainforest, I'm not going to be eating macadamias. Just shake it. Not really, no. There's, and also some of the... <laughs> One's in the rainforest, they're inedible there. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's lucky. <laughs> Don't do that then. And, and also down, but Aboriginal not... people must have. Yeah, must have, uh, maybe there's a preparation for them or heat them or... Uh, they, yeah, they did eat the, the non-edible ones. They used to wash them somehow. Right, okay. But, so there you uh, go. Uh, yeah, they did eat them. You'll eat anything if you're hungry enough. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, they would have found them, so... And, and Dan, I'm just not going to go into a rainforest and shake a tree and wait to see what falls onto yeah. my face. <laughs> that is a way to die very yes. quickly. Macadamia, nuts and spiders. Spiders. Hooray. And also you shake a tree and a cassowary goes, right, there's something over shaking a tree. I'm going, get, <laughs> I'm going to nip over there and kick it to death. <laughs> you see, you're, you're quite terrified of cassowaries. I am, yeah. I'm not fond of them. The Frog Princess and I went to a bird park in Bali and there was the cassowary enclosure mm. and the fence was like a two-foot-high wooden mm. fence. What? Like, I was like, but, but aren't those the birds that kill people? Murder birds. That's their technical... No, that's my... <laughs> Look, all I know is every time I see a cassowary, maybe they're in zoos. It's getting off away from Nazi, sorry. But every time I see a murder bird, a cassowary in a zoo, they always seem 
angry, probably because they're in a zoo. But the, and you go up to the fence, and every time, maybe it's just me, they kick the heck out of the fence. Like they <laughs> yeah, yeah. hammer the fence, and you just go, oh, okay, and don't go near them. I've just gone, I oh, have healthy respect for the living dinosaur. <laughs> is there anything special that we need to know about growing macadamias that is different to other nuts? I think it's the same principle. The main difference with macadamias is because they've only been cultivated for 50 years, it's all new still. So Mm. when you get an almond or something, it's probably a variety that's 200 years old and that breeding's all happened way time and long time in the past. Ah, right. And so there's a lot of unknowns for optimising them. But at the same time, you're at the early stage in the the progression where every step you make tends to be a, a relatively good one it's beginning to stabilize now but there was a period where you know you could improve quite quickly even though you didn't have a lot of knowledge so are there different families of macadamia that you're trying that people are aiming for to try to get for a, a, a sort of a, a stronger taste or a hardier crop or what, what are you most, focusing we, on? we're tree breeders as well yep. shorter okay. shorter trees that's what i was going yeah. 12 15 meter trees surely you want like a one meter bush Oh, well, we, 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 are, we are interested in dwarfs for sure. Yes, yeah, that would be. But <laughs> mostly breeding is about increasing productivity at okay. this stage because we're probably about, if you do the maths on the luminescence and so forth, we're probably about halfway to where we could be. Oh. In our own program, we're also interested in the dwarfing and flavour as well. Mm. Yeah. So you can, you're saying that the, the crop that you get from the same number of trees in the future, let's say 50 years in the future, you feel that you'll be able to double the yield? I think that's reasonable. Yeah. Okay, wow. That's a big, wow. That's a big, mm. big amount. Yeah. Now on my tree, half of my nuts, I've got like a little teeny tiny hole in it. That's right. And a little yeah. grub has gotten in there. Yeah. What's going on there? That's called the macadamia nut borer. Oh, okay. That's a, what a strange coincidence. <laughs> it's got the same name. Unless you live on a lychee farm, and then it's the lychee borer. Oh, right. But, uh, they, they prefer lychees to macadamias. That's controlled now mostly commercially with a little parasitic wasp that we put out. Ooh, really? where do I get my hands on that? So, so how does that work? How do you, so how do you, what do you, do you just um, release a wasp? They come in the mail and they... <laughs> <laughs> That must be the worst package to open ever. No, no, they're tiny, tiny little things. You can't even see them. And um, they come on playing cards. And and what they are is they're the eggs of the nut borer. I've got the seven of wasps. (laughs) So there's your card. They're the eggs of the nut borer that have been parasitised by this wasp, and so they've got baby wasp inside them. And then you put these cards, you staple them to leaves all through the orchard, and then the the wasps emerge, and then they go for more eggs. Oh my goodness! And it's incredibly effective. That, yeah, but Ooh. are they a Australian wasp then? Because they they call them trichogramma wasp, and oh, they right. they literally are. You can't see them; they're so tiny. Oh, so, are, they, are they Australian? Do you know if they're all? Oh uh, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, well, they found them in Australia. Where, Australia. where they came from? Yeah, I couldn't tell you, but they weren't introduced. But it yeah. was a program, and they. Wow, well, they found them. So that's amazing. Do they only kill the macadamia borer? Uh, or, or they for, pretty but, much? Yeah. Wow, it's, it's out of my area, but I think trichogramma. It's very diverse sort of species, and they all go for different insects, like little and niche. So, yeah, and so cool. they once once they find them, then they. There's a second stage where they have to work out how to breed them in captivity and then they just bulk breed them and put and them And I hi- highly recommend our listeners, anyone who wants to not never sleep again, look up the life cycle of wasps because the idea that they you know laying babies into things and the babies burst out, it's, it's aliens. It's xenomorph it aliens. It's pretty evil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that these ones are like, oh, you can't see them. You can't yeah. see them. They could be in your head. They're effectively invisible. <laughs> <laughs> they could be anywhere. <laughs> well, these, well, our grub listeners going, oh. 
<laughs> so these trees developed in the rainforest, so they're a rainforest tree, but how hardy are they when you take them away from a rainforest environment? Like, can you grow them in Tasmania? You can, but you probably won't get any crop. Ah. Oh. So it's, it's quite surprising. They've tried growing them in other parts of the world where you say, oh, well, you've looked at the weather records and it's very similar, and they just haven't really been that successful. So they, it's fairly small area where they... In Australia, they grow from Lismore, or actually it's a bit south of that, up to Bundaberg. But by the time they get to Bundaberg, they've got to have irrigation and stuff, and it's yeah. probably that's probably the northern limit. So it's it's quite a small area, and yeah. then only within fifty kilometres of the coast. So there's a lot of export of them. Yeah, yeah. So for our listeners who are not from Australia, that's about about five hundred kilometre range, maybe yeah, five six hundred kilometres. Yeah, yeah. That's that's not that's not a big area at all. Because I was thinking, actually, when you're thinking about East Coast Australia at that point, I was thinking Africa and like Madagascar might be similar. Sort They're of grown area. in South Africa. Oh, okay. Yep. They haven't been successful in Brazil to this point. Right. Big Brazil nuts keeping them out. That's what it is. Oh, uh, I think it's partly because they take <laughs> such a long time to crop that they just get sick of it after five years and say, no, we'll put oranges oh. back in again. And, yeah. <laughs> um, it takes a long So you can't... Oh, hang on. That's a good question then. So you can't just plant a tree and have a crop the next year? No, nah, it's about eight years. Eight years? Yeah, for commercial cropping. How the... Wow. That's... You've got to not have any income from that crop for eight years. Yeah. That's well, no, you'll have hard. some, but it'll, it'll be sub-commercial before eight years. That's yeah. amazing. That's, yeah. that's hard. It's like that's... trying to farm elephants for food. <laughs> yeah. Like, that yeah. takes a while. Yeah, and they have, like, one kid every, like, 20 years or whatever it is or something. Yeah, it's <laughs> scary. But yeah, so it's, it's reducing, but it's, it's still a major that's amazing. reason for the cost. Yeah. So do you have a big problem with the concept of climate change and a worry about the future and where that's going and, and sort of the, the drying out of land or the change of the climate? Yeah, I, I think it is a, certainly a risk for all agriculture, but ours mm. is a, it's, it's obviously a fairly sensitive species, so it'll only mm. grow in a small area now. Whether that all moves north or moves south or yeah. whatever, but some agriculture like wheat, I think climate change is less of a problem because you can just shift the farm next year and put in because you're planting every year anyway. Mm. But macadamias, once you've got them in, you're, you're stuck with them and you can't shift the farm. <laughs> yeah, mm. so you've got eight, eight years. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a risk for the industry. Yeah, that's amazing. It's it's really you keep these long crops. I didn't even think about that. Mm. You can't just quickly grow them. So I'm just stuck on that. <laughs> so so strange. So they are a bugger of a nut to get into. Yeah. When I was a kid, my aunt had a big tree and we'd sit there with like bricks and hammers and just make <laughs> a mess. Yeah. Mm. So do you have like the, the tricks or special tools and such? Well, we crack them. Yeah. You crack them. So it's a sort of. Do you use your hands? It's no, no. It's it's, it's <laughs> not easy to explain on radio, but it's sort of two knives that are arranged in a V and the nuts. Sort Sort of oh. go past, they get cut open. Well, not cut open, but sort of smashed open that way. Right. Yeah. Actually, opening them's really hard, easy, but the hard part is to open them without smashing the kernel inside. Mm. That, yeah, that's the little brainy-looking thing in the. Yeah. The, no, no, it's just white. It's just white. Oh, so no, what am I thinking of? What do they just go to? The oh, walnuts. I think walnuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so used. As if. Look, I'm just doing that for the listeners who don't understand nuts. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bought. I bought a macadamia. Cracking device and it's like a big wooden tray with a lever on it. Oh yeah, you pull the lever across and it just goes and it that's cracks the, it open perfectly. That's the every best time. of the hand crackers. That one. Oh, it's Ooh, wonderful! There you, there you. Like the, it looks like someone has taken these bits off a really expensive truck <laughs> and like put them together. Like it's so beautifully tooled. <laughs> the reason we've got you in today is that some of your tools are actually substantially even more exciting than that one. <laughs> then like, robots, then, you mean. Then Your robots. Yes, oh, yes. But there are robots involved? Not robots. From, from wasps to robots. I'm excited. Let's oh, see this yes. thing. 
number one, it's a bitch to pick up those little nuts off the ground. Yeah, yeah. And the mower does not like them. No, no. A, a lot of nuts are shaken down, but in macadamias they just wait for them to drop and then they pick them up off the ground as they come down. So Really? Yeah, and it's just commercial <laughs> systems that sweep them up and then and pick them. There's something quite sweet about that. It's like when, you, when you're waiting for whiskey in a barrel, you're like, <laughs> oh, you've got to be patient for the macadamia yeah. nuts. You wait for them to fall. And then it hits you in the head. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> dang, dang, shit. Yeah, so there's, there's machines that do that. And we had one there, but I've since in the last couple of years, I've been developing one that is designed for robotic control. And so it's a lot smaller than a normal harvester. It's, most harvesters are based on sort of 50 horsepower tractors, whereas this is roughly the size of a lawnmower. Um, <laughs> which makes it a bit easier to drive around amongst trees. I yeah, know. at the moment it's a remote control vehicle, which actually yeah. makes it too slow, but you have to go through the process of getting a vehicle that works properly before you start putting autonomy into it. Mm -hmm. Once it's Mm. autonomous, it works out to be very economic because it just works away in the background. It just hoon up and down the the rows. So you plant them in rows? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, You just hoons up and down the rows and and hoovers up all the the macadamia nuts. That's the plan. That's That's very cool. Now, is the plan for it to go in straight lines or are you going to be like the the Roomba and sort of wander around in little... It's a bit halfway between. So when I first started in it 10 years ago, I was involved in a project that was about getting the yield of all the individual trees in a block. So at the moment, there's commercial harvesters that go through in a run and they do a whole row. And so you can get the yield of a row or the yield of a block. But we were interested in getting that down to the individual yields of every tree in the block every tree in the block. Right. That project was trying to monitor what was happening in a commercial harvester and it was it, it got quite close but didn't didn't get there. So this has now come back and it's a different way, different approach to getting the same thing whereas basically instead of going up and down the row it'll do one tree send that back to a processing unit that then weighs it and then start the next tree. Oh, okay. So you can then figure out which trees are giving the best yield. Exactly. Yeah. And that makes it easier to grow better yielding trees in the future. Well, when there's one that's under, you go out and you try and find out why. Find the borers or whatever, whatever's going on. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Just, just like have a long, hard word with it. Really shake it down. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, no, it's, a, it's a technique that's used in, other, in broadacre. They call it precision agriculture where they get wheat yields. They can get that down to sort of hectare grids. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And I'm trying to get it down to single tree. Grid. <laughs> yeah. So what are the difficulties of creating a lawnmower-sized object that can pick nuts up off the ground? One thing that's become clear to me with robotics the last couple of years, because I've been using a lot of testing on this little unit, it's about to go autonomous, I hope, in the next 12 months. It's a level of reliability that you don't see in normal machines because mm. when you're driving a, a normal harvester with a tractor, you're constantly making little adjustments that you're not even aware of. If something goes wrong, you muck around with a switch or something like that. But when something's autonomous, in principle, mm. you're not there. Mm. So anything that goes wrong is a pain because it's going to send you an SMS and say, come and help me, and you've got to go do that. <laughs> if you get an SMS every 15 minutes... You're going to turn it off after a day. Yeah, mm. yeah you might um, as well do it yourself. If if you're getting an SMS a day, I'd say that's borderline. Really, you're looking at one fault per month or something like that. Anything more than that right. is going to be a problem. So, yeah. so well, it's I've, a, I've got a little dusting robot, and it always gets itself lodged under one piece of furniture. Mm. And I'm just every day like, oh, it screams this little beep, and you're like, you little bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's a level of getting that reliability and just the mechanical side of it is is really important. If I went and lay next to a tree, would it harvest my nuts? 
A serious question. Could it, would I would I be in mortal danger from? Ah, uh, no. Actually, autonomous? it's it's one of. I think it's one of the design features of my robot, if you like, <laughs> is that it's quite feeble. So, <laughs> I, I'm pretty feeble too. Well, you know, there's 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 uh, 600 horsepower tractors out there that effectively can drive themselves, right. and they've still got a an operator in them. And I think his job is to just press the red button when it goes crazy, because if you've got a tractor that big. And it goes mad. It's Greg's not gonna... got no nuts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's fancy. <laughs> it's going to do a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah. And you won't stop it until it runs out of fuel. Whereas with mine, it's, um, <laughs> it's just the robot off over the, the robot uprising yeah. is here. Yeah, yeah. You don't like to think about it. Whereas with yeah. my one, I mean, even if it goes bonkers, yep. it really can't do any damage. Can't hurt I love, I love the notion of like a giant like macadamia collecting tractor turning up on Sarah Connor's doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so how's it, how's it? Is it sucking them up or is it like no, no, sweeping them up? Um, there's little tiny fingers. We call them finger wheels. That's not my invention. That's that's used throughout the industry. Mm-hmm. And they're just like a bank of wheels with fingers on the outside. As they run the nuts over, the nuts get stuck in them. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then nice. there's a second set, or we call them extractor combs, which are just sort of fingers that fit between the fingers and pull them back and out suck again. Suck them out. Oh, Amazing. wow. That's, wow, okay. That's, so it's not, it's not like a big vacuum cleaner then? That would no, be. there are machines like that. Oh, okay. But, but this one's not. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. And does it collect a bunch of sticks and stuff? Or? Yeah, yeah, sticks, leaves, everything. And you have to sort of filter all that stuff out? It's very desirable to get rid of it before the harvest season starts with mowing and so forth. Right. But okay. it picks them up and then it's a second process to get rid of them. Ah, right. Yeah. Now you've got all the nuts, but some of the nuts have little holes in them and borers and stuff That's right, and yeah. some of the nuts are not the right size so this moves on to the next part of your genius right, plan yes. <laughs> my plan for nut domination <laughs> operating the farm from my veranda yeah. <laughs> that's yes that's that's what i thought you'd like to do just sit yeah. there and have a quiet drink whilst the machines do all the work for you for the ug boots on and stuff yeah. <laughs> so the next stage is a sorting machine so they go they get picked up and then de-husking which is getting rid of all the trash on them and then there's a sorting machine. Because there's two layers of shell on a macadamia, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, there's, there's one the that's husk. the equivalent of the fruit, and then there's the equivalent of the outside of the shell, of the, of the, of the pip, as it were. Right. Do, is, oh. do they have sort of any fruit meat? No, no. And it's so just it's like just, a skin. Yeah, yeah. skin. Right. Yeah, and then, so then there's a hard shell inside that and then the kernel. There's defects on those, and so I've built a machine that's working now. It looks at them with video, also weighs all of the nuts one by one. <laughs> and then it makes a decision about whether it's a good nut or a bad nut and chucks them out if they're no good. Yeah. That's very cool. And actually the plan is in the future that that sorting machine will become part of the harvester or the harvesting system so that in addition to getting the yield of every single tree, I'll also get the reject analysis of every single tree. So wow. If then, you know, you find the nut borers that you were talking about at the start. So if you find a tree that's got a whole lot of those, that means you go back there and say, well what's going on, I'll get rid of those for next year. That is so it's, neat. It's sort of the future. It's so funny. You, th- you sort of think farming has been around for a long, long, long time, you know, human civilization. But even now we're like, okay, how can we streamline this? How can we make this easier? And, and how did you yeah. do it? Like, how did you start off as a – did you – I mean, did, were you always interested in robotics and such? Or how did, how did you um, make that – The first machine I spoke to you about, which was monitoring commercial harvesters, mm-hmm. that was a project that was run by the industry about 10 years ago, and I was very involved in that. And it was actually referred to as the DSI machine, which was David's stupid idea. So, <laughs> so I, that was an idea. I, I wanted to get this this monitoring, this yield monitoring thing happening, where we get the individual tree yields as you're driving a normal commercial harvester. 
And so I was very involved in that and I picked up the techniques and after that, that project didn't finish up where we wanted it to, but I kept going and uh, yeah, just, just keep doing it and basically taught myself and I've got a few friends that have also helped me out or giving me instruction, as it were. Could you work in partnership with universities? Are there people, people out there who would, who would chat to you about like roboticists yeah. and things like that? And... Yeah, yeah. More agricultural scientists I've right. spoken. I've got quite good contacts with those people. But, yeah, mm. I was actually speaking to somebody just the other day from Upper Toowoomba. They've got a robotics lab up there. So. Mm. That's, oh, that's really exciting. I like the notion that this autonomous lawnmower device that you hope, you hope to get going in a year is like the Generation 1. By, like, Generation 7, you can just, like, Go out the front of your property and go fly my pretties, and just a bunch of quadcopters go out and pull back, bring back one nut each. <laughs> just a swarm of them, tiny wasp creatures that fly out and terrifying. Well, they're actually yeah. using um, <laughs> drones and strawberries to distribute the the wasps. A different sort of one. Oh, <laughs> oh no! What no? <laughs> Robots no. delivering biological. No, <laughs> that's really interesting. So. Could it, it, I guess you don't need flying things. Yours, even though it's fifteen meters up, you, they're falling to the ground. You don't need to. You don't need to go to the canopy with a. With uh, a with well, I think fire. I'm not completely convinced by drones because you've got machinery going through the track, through the orchard, mm. doing other things, and I think it's just as easy to attach a camera to your tractor and get them okay. for free. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, no, no, monitoring will be a really big thing in the next 20 years, so it won't mm. just be yield and rejects. It'll be looking at the leaves and eventually it might be looking for, if the resolution's high enough, looking for insects in the canopy so that oh they can goodness. act on them. Yeah. If you've got an insect outbreak and you can stop it when it's five trees old... It's much better than having to try and stop it on your whole farm. Yeah, there's, there's this image of this like a little tractor pulling up next to a tree and his arm coming up with a fly swatter, pulls back down, drives away. <laughs> yeah, isn't well, it? That's uh, I'm not sure that'll work. <laughs> Look, you can have that idea if you want. It. That's fine. Yes. I'll give you that one. <laughs> we, won't, we, won't, we won't charge you for it. <laughs> well, actually, you, can, you can't predict it. You know, it's mm. okay. People do. I guess I guess things. the last generation of your family who worked on this farm, if you'd said there was going to be a, a robot-controlled tractor back, you know, you're talking 50 mm. years ago, they probably would have gone, too much sci-fi for that boy. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I, pretty I, much. Because that technology, you, you are, you're on the bleeding edge of it, really, the, the cusp of this technology. Yeah. I, well, there's, there's a lot of work going on at the moment. I think where my stuff is a bit different is that it's very focused on actually getting a device that I'm going to use, mm. whereas there's a lot of really what you call basic research in robotics going mm. out there, and they haven't... Well, there is some, some stuff that's also gone through to adoption, but it's, it's not as focused on just one single thing, mm. which is what I do. Everyone's trying to build all the foundational stuff in your Yeah, and you need it. it a, make it work. Yeah, there's make no, see, no see doubt the... you, you need that stuff. Yeah, uh, but, but you it's... also need the test cases where you're like, oh, this is something that you guys didn't even think of. Yeah, and I think, you know, this, you can see some machines that are clearly demonstration units where they want to demonstrate a whole lot of different technologies. Mm. And it's probably getting to the point now where you say, okay, we're going to use that one for picking strawberries or something like that and really focus it down. And that's probably the next phase, I think, with, with that work. So they're probably not, you're saying it's probably not going to be an kind of omni-picker. It'll, it'll be strawberries or you know, macadamia. Uh, or... Well, no, I th- I th- it'll be horses for courses, I think. You may, like the, some yep. people are working on, my stuff only does one thing. Hopefully mm. it'll do it really well. Mm. but won't do anything else. If you take it to an apricot orchard, it won't be very useful. <laughs> yeah. If there was a terrible marble disaster, yeah. it might be useful. <laughs> but then there's other ones where they're really trying to build a, 
a general purpose machine that is robotic. And that's, well, I wouldn't touch that simply because it's just a massive undertaking to do. Mm, so. Yeah. I like the way you're coming from it as, as in from the, what I will call ground up, I guess, but not robotic ground, as in from literally the ground, <laughs> uh, as in you have a, an issue with, with your farm and you're going to solve it with a tool. Yeah. And that tool happens to be a robot. It's just, it's not like you're like, let's say I have robots. It's, it's, yeah, it's a different way of looking at it, which gives you a different perspective. Yeah. So these robots, is there any part of the technology that, that people have noticed would be useful to progress in a different direction or that you've noticed is, uh, like, have you turned one of them into a tiny automatic toothbrush or something? Or t- Definitely <laughs> with the harvest robot. To make that autonomous, you need an in-orchard positioning system. So before you can navigate something, you need to know where you are. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that GPS doesn't operate in orchards generally. You can't, you can't triangulate. Well, it's just not enough signal. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah of so, course. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, there's very accurate G, GPS in Broadacre, sort of two centimetre mm. range. Wow. But um, it just doesn't work in, in orchards. So you know, I, I know that we used to have a big mango tree where I used to live in Townsville and the, just the TV reception was terrible, but yeah. only in our house. Yeah, yeah, you get a reflection and stuff and it's... So getting that in-orchard positioning system, which is what I put a lot of time into when I'm not building it, it's mm. the software side of it. If I get that, it won't just be for harvesters. It'll be for mowers and, and yeah. other stuff as well. Whereas do you watch very carefully all like Elon Musk of the world who are trying to make self-driving cars mm. and that sort of mm. stuff? Because mm. that seems like those technologies would be together, yeah. similar anyway. Theirs is very different to what I'm doing, Okay, the method for doing it. Hmm. All industries are very interested in it. Well, yeah, well, the AI, because, yeah, you're right. And we move, so it knows where it is. It has to be able to. I live in Perth, and there's an autonomous bus there that's been trialed. Right. It actually has a problem when it goes underneath trees. It's been told to, well, as soon as you lose triangulation from GPS, yep. to, to slow down and really go to a crawl, even though it's got lots of sensors that don't trust it not to go hurling off the highway and, you know, kill everyone. So, though it probably wouldn't, it's just that they're really scared about Probably is people. not a word you want to use. No, no. Kill a <laughs> yeah. bunch of people. No, that's Right, yeah. So that's, that's with the GPS. It's a, it is a problem of once you lose GPS, it, if it doesn't know where it is, you have a big problem. It is, and typically you've got a lot of different sensors that are operating. So you'll have cameras and all that sort of stuff, mm. but none of them are perfectly accurate. So you've got erroneous data coming in from all these places, and you've got to decide which is the most correct or what <laughs> combination is the most correct. But you know, I've seen GPS in orchards drift fifty meters, and. That's the difference between an apple and an orange. Yeah. That's the difference between an apple and being in the dam. So so the problem is I don't think there's any way that you can actually decide when GPS is drifting and when it's accurate. So Mm -hmm. if you have it in the mix, a 50-metre drift is going to pull all the other instruments away. It's difficult. Wow. So what is the question that we don't realise that we should be asking a robotics macadamia Ah. creator? (laughs) Oh, the robot overlords? What, what? <laughs> yeah. Are you allowed to mention them? Hang on a minute. Or they're, or they're losing their jobs. I'm, I'm, I'm for robots. People are concerned about oh. losing their jobs with them, but um, uh, and it will take away jobs. There's no doubt about that. Mm. But I think you know history says that advancements make people better. So mm. it's in the long term, it's not a problem. And hopefully, uh, with that, what is it? Default minimum income um, or um, basic basic guaranteed income basic yeah. guaranteed income yeah. once that if that if we can actually get that off the yeah. ground we, then we, we talked yeah. about we Scott Santon utopia that's right a we utopia talk... filled with macadamia oh, nuts I'll just sit there with a the robot doing all the work while I eat macadamia nuts it's going to be well, amazing it's interesting because 100 years ago 90% of the jobs in the world were agriculture mm. Mm. and today that's 
five percent or so. I didn't. I didn't actually know what a macadamia nut looked like <laughs> until I talked to a man who made them. So you know. So, so you know, it follows that we've lost eighty-five percent of the jobs, but we're still at roughly full employment. It's, yeah, it's, it's just a whole bunch of people are doing stupid jobs. But, yeah, yeah. But I mean, d- we we do find other jobs. So. Digging yams is pretty stupid. I'm going to point this out. <laughs> <laughs> Not if you not if you really want a yam. Well, that's true. But maybe I really want a website too. Uh, David Bell from the Hidden Valley Plantation. Thank you so much. So exciting to learn about something that is in my backyard and I knew nothing about. <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. Thank you again to Mr. David Bell. And the thing is, I suddenly realised that I didn't know anything what the nut was. I, you don't I was know. thinking of a whole different nut. I, don't, I think you were thinking about an entirely different phylum. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, somewhere, it's funny how you go, wait, are we talking about what we think I'm talking? Well, no, we're not. We're talking about something utterly, oh, dear. You, you oh say dear. we, and but you mean I. Well, I... I, I, mean, I know what a macadamia nut is. <laughs> What I enjoyed after we recorded the interview, we're at your beautiful home in the mystery location that only some listeners know where it is, as some are working it out as we speak. Now here's not more information. He has a macadamia nut tree in the back garden. So we went out and actually had a look at some macadamia nuts. It was very exciting. If you're looking for Dan's house, if you're still playing the game, macadamia nuts Shh, are, in the back, oh are in the back garden. You've given them too much information. I got an e- email from a listener a couple of months ago saying that they had a pretty, they, they actually put a, a map, like a Google map, <laughs> and put a circle where you lived. And I was looking at it going, that's, that's pretty good. Like, I mean, it, it, was, it was still 30, God. 40, 50K circle. Great. I'm so, I'm so glad that you've actually told them that, yes, they're on the right track. Don't uh, don't help out with the obfuscation. Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to them. They say, does he did he live or does he live in this radius? And I looked at the radius and went, yes, yes, he does. He actually does live in that radius. You, you you're really nailing it down. I was actually slightly disappointed because it was about 20k radius, so about 40k's across. That's a big area. You know, that really is a big area. They could have really thought about it harder and kind of shrunk it down, I feel, probably to 10Ks or so, then I'd be impressed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it should be pretty obvious, like, if they know that it's um, that I'm right near that fairground, uh, the, that fairground with the giant no, inflatable no gorillas. Don't even try. And the, uh, I'm not helping you. And that's the waterfall. Lie. I mean, you can. I have to edit out the sound of the waterfall. That's true. That's yeah. And the abattoir, that giant abattoir with all the cows being killed all the time. Yes. A, none of these are true. None of these are true. That's a, it's it's. We know that we won't go through all the things, but yes, we, it, yes, you do live in a mystery location somewhere, somewhere in Brisbane. That's what we're going to say. Why don't we talk about some science? <laughs> When I was a kid, my grandfather taught me how to fish. So there's lots of fun stuff going on there, like little tiny threads, and you thread them through little hooks and then spin them and tie them a particular way. And there's all sorts of fun science going on so far as buoyancy and 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 uh, just yeah, buoyancy is the only one yes. that I can think of. But and the anatomy of fish and stuff and the life cycle yep. of fish and crabs and all that sort of stuff. And I, I thought I knew quite a lot about fishing, but I discovered a brand new type of fishing recently. Oh, yes. It's called... Is it explosives? It is not explosives. Oh. I already knew about that. <laughs> Thank you, Crocodile Dundee 2. 
<laughs> or more specifically, the Mad Magazine ripoff of Crocodile Dundee 2, which is where I of was course, first exposed to that. Mad yeah. Magazine, that's a, wow, that's a throwback. Good yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, if, if listeners fold the podcast in and listen to the first bit and the last bit, <laughs> it actually says something completely different. It certainly does. You're absolutely right there. That's very true. This type of fishing is called magnet fishing. What you do <laughs> is you get a really strong neodymium magnet and you tie it to a rope. And then you take this rope, and instead of chucking it into the sea, you take it and chuck it into a man-made canal. Uh It is very popular in Europe, and uh, a lot of the videos I've seen are in Britain, where there's all those canals. And they are gross canals. Yep. Yeah, they really are, yes. So you throw a magnet in, and they bring up all sorts of stuff. I've seen, like, lists of uh, spoons, knives, coins, engine parts... Entire bikes, park benches, <laughs> yeah. jewellery, gas bottles, money boxes, firearms, unexploded munitions, uh, <laughs> nails, screws, tools, fish hooks, yeah. locks, scissors, and a safe with the door cut off. <laughs> you use your rig. You can take, like, a little tiny magnet if you want, but most of these people get, like, this magnet's about eight centimetres across, so that's, like, yeah, three oh, inches. Yeah, yeah, the big, yeah, the big or ones. Or half yeah. a cubit, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> and... I'm never going to get sick and tired of making fun of the Americans for their imperial system. Yeah, well, you've got to remember that uh, the British people still use miles to measure distance as well, so we can mock them too, just just to spread the mocking around. I'm very happy to do that. <laughs> but what some people do is rather than just getting one of these single magnets, they get three magnets and they bolt it to a fry pan <laughs> and then they cast the whole thing. It looks like an anchor, basically. And so it gets a, it spreads out the magnetic power and is able to pick up more stuff right okay and uh, so it's stronger as well so it can pick up like stuff like bikes <laughs> bike frames and so and, and i thought well that's that's quite a fun thing to do because you get the the excitement of fishing but without yep. having to deal with the gutting and scaling yeah. of fishing the, the murder at the end that's right yeah the, the fish slaying yes and you're cleaning <laughs> stuff up too like you're cleaning up these these waterways. yeah and you can you can maybe get something valuable and do a good job and yeah Hopefully not find like a corpse, something like that. That'd, that'd be oh, cool. that would be the, that would be amazing. Get a corpse, <laughs> iron corpse. Find a motorcycle helmet with a skull in it or something. <laughs> with, obviously, you pick him up by his iron fillings. What would you be? Well, the, the motorcycle for? helmet, I guess. That's not metal. They were in the war. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're looking for a, a World War Two motorcyclist that's in your canal? Yes. Well, they've oh, they found unexploded munitions. Yeah, from the I war, guess so. so yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. People don't clean out those canals. No, you can find all sorts of people down there. Goodness me. Yeah, but the thing that I found quite interesting was that they were getting some coins. Yep. Now I, I find this very, very foreign because in Australia our coins are not magnetic. Yeah, not at all. No, absolutely not. At not. All. There are some coins that are. Canadian coins, Bolivian coins, and Brazilian coins are magnetic, but US coins and Australian coins, not so much, or not at all. Not, not, they're not magnetic themselves. They, they're, um, they're not affected by magnetism. They're not ferrous. Yes, they're not ferrous. They're not yeah, ferrous. yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Yeah, I'm about to say, they literally have magnetic coins, do they? As in coins that are magnets. Well, you that's can it. get those, but generally it's a normal coin that's had a magnet hidden inside it and is sold on magicians' websites. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. They're not that. Okay. Got okay. It. okay. Not, not, so they're no not magnetic, magic. but, it, yeah, Australian coins, they can't be affected. They're not affected by magnets. So you can't pick yes, them up yes. with a magnet. 
if you were to go magnet fishing here in Australia, you'd get all the, the tools and the guns and the motorcycle helmets, but you wouldn't get any of the coins. <laughs> Magnetism generally only works properly, but like attractively on like four different things. It's like iron, nickel, yeah. I think. And ferrous, ferrous metals. Ferrous yeah. metals. Now, Australian oh, there coins. Are things as well. You can induce, like paramagnetism can be induced in other things as well. But let's just say, let's just go with, let's just say with, um, yeah. Yeah, like, like copper or something, but it's a different, yeah, it's a a different few, effect. Yeah, you, you drop can... a, a magnet through a tube of copper in it, yeah. it resists par- or something. Yeah, well, it basically makes a four, it induces a current, which induces a magnetic field in reverse to where, yeah, the direction of travel. So it slows it down, yes. It's pretty cool. We're, yeah. we're seeing. Now, Australian coins are made up of copper-nickel alloy, which is 75% copper and 25% nickel. But nickel's one of those ferrous materials. So you would think that it would be 25% as magnetic as iron or nickel or full nickel. The process of making it into an alloy changes the atomic structure, making it not magnetic. Like the shape of the atomic lattice stops it from interacting with the magnetic field. Yeah. Which I just found amazing. And this is one reason that stainless steel isn't magnetic, despite being packed full of iron. You can just turn magnetism off in iron by changing the the structure of it. Yeah, I guess so. So all the dipoles are facing in, in different ways, so they're not all lined up. But so magnetism only works when the little little magnets inside the large magnet, you want to think of it that way, are all lined in a certain direction. Because if they're all higgledy-piggledy, then of course there's not going to be any sort of set magnetic field in one direction. It's just all over the place, so it cancels out. Oh, that's a good, that's a good mental image to explain. Yeah. So if you heat them, so sometimes they have to heat them up to um, align them or to disalign them, or you can bash the hell out of them. So you take a magnet, a proper magnet, and you hammer that. You just keep bashing the hell out of it. In the end, you'll take, you'll destroy it. You can destroy its magnetism because you're unaligning all the little magnets inside. If you want to think of it that way. Mm. So uh, yeah, you can't, you can't just use them. Now you can still use magnets to find Australian coins if you do it the right way, because oh, yes. coins they're not ferrous, but they are electrically conductive in fact i actually i got a watch battery and i stuck it in my wallet with all my coins and i sort of yep. went somewhere and said oh i need to i need to get a, a watch battery just like this watch battery and i pulled it out of my wallet and it was like blisteringly hot and it yep. turns out that the top of that watch battery and the bottom of that watch battery had co- connected to all the coins in my wallet and formed a circuit <laughs> and had just heated up all the coins in my in my wallet oh my goodness like that's my, great it was uh, my wallet was burning a hole in my pocket yeah, something's been ringing in my head wrong. Only iron is ferrous. Nickel's not ferrous at all. It's not a ferrous metal. Ferromagnetic is iron, nickel, cobalt, and some alloys of rare earth metals. No, 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 no. What have I missed? You're mixing up ferrous with ferromagnetic. But you, you've been saying ferrous. Oh, well, what's the difference there? A ferrous metal is basically iron. And so, and the ferromagnetic is one that can, indu- can have one induced in it. So you can induce a, a field in a ferromagnetic fe- in a ferromagnetic metal. So I, I think we confused because it's non-ferrous. You have to have iron in it to make. I'm just reading it. Non-ferrous metals in metallurgy, a non-ferrous metal is a metal including alloys that does not contain iron in any appreciable amounts. Zinc, nickel, tin. These are all non-ferrous metals. The word ferrous just means consisting of iron. So it's not a ferrous ah, metal. Right. A, ferrous me- a ferrous metal is, is basically is iron. iron. Or something with iron in it. So steel can be a ferrous metal. Certain alloys can be ferrous. Okay, so, uh, so nickel and cobalt, they're ferromagnetic. Ferromagnetic. Okay. So, yes, that's right. So they yeah. have the same 
behavior they're just not it, called yes, yes all right okay that's right cool. can form permanent can form permanent magnets yes or attra- or are attracted to magnets this is always the danger when talking about magnets they're very no confusing them. yeah that's they're right. magic so, it's it is hard, and look, I mean, we all sort of people laughed at you know how magnets, how do they work, and we went, yeah. Then you actually go, well, how do they work? And one of the interesting things is magnetism is quite hard to explain on on a atomic level, and when it comes down to any of the fundamental forces, are hard to explain. We can measure it very, very well: magnetism, electricity, electromagnetism as a force. But where does it come from? That's a, that's a harder question to answer. But anyway, yeah, so that's getting off. Like, what, like as in, where does gravity come from? You go, well, it's a fundamental force. We don't know. Why does the nuclear strong force happen? Why does the nuclear weak force happen? Well, we know what they are. We can measure them to an amazing degree. But, but we don't know why they exist. All I want to do is use it to find cash, Greg. That's, I know. I'm sorry. Now, what I want to do is I want to find coins, Australian coins, that are not ferromagnetic yes. using magnets. Excellent. What I do is I get my magnet and I run it back and forth between my copper wire and I create a magnetic field. I push that magnetic field through 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 the world. If it hit, When it hits something that's electrically conductive, yes. that magnetic field then passes through a piece of metal and it makes that a little bit electrically charged. Yes. So that bit of metal, it's not ferromagnetic, is still electrically charged. So yep. my coin gets charged, and it creates its own magnetic field. Right, yes. So what I do is I have another magnet on my device that listens for that magnetic field, and when it gets powered by that magnetic field passing over it, it powers a little beeper that goes beep in my headset, and I go, oh, my first magnets are near the coin. This is a metal detector. This is a metal detector. Right, okay, I've got to say, you're describing a metal detector. Yes. I've... It was the beep. It was the beep that made me jump to that final conclusion. <laughs> now, it does work better with ferromagnetic materials like iron and nickel, but it will still work with other metals, so Australian coins will work. So that's how I use magnets to cash myself up. Ah, there you go. So that's why you can find non-ferrous things with a metal detector. There you go. That's, that is quite interesting. I did not know that. Uh-uh. So we're make millions, millions. <laughs> or we can just sell all these safes with the doors cut off. As long as the money's still inside them, I don't mind. That's, that's not what lack of doors are for. Damn it! Walk of shame. Oh, I love walk of shame. I've got some interesting ones this time. Some. Um, sort of more about the same thing twice, more than anything else. I mean, friend of the show, Janet, wrote in to say that she is uh, annoyed at the crypto zoo about Smurfs because we're making some She's the only one. Everyone loved that one. Yeah, well, yes. But no, just think we, we, we made some I- I problems, I made some issues. So basically we uh, said that mammals can't be blue. So therefore, in the end, we said they were they were hit with um, colloid silver. Therefore, all the, all the Smurfs were blue. They were mammals, but they were blue because they had colloidal silver in their skin. But she points out there are at least two primates that have blue skin. So one is literally called the blue-balled monkey, uh, Chlorocebus. And it has blue balls. There you go. Nice. Uh, and not just metaphorically? Not, not just metaphorically. It actually has okay. blue testes. And the other one is called the golden snub-nosed monkey. And it also is blue, has blue parts on it. Oh, so right. mammals, mammals so, can have blue skin. So it's like the mandrel that we talked about. It's probably using iridescent collagen. Maybe. Yes, maybe. Yes, because yes, we did discuss the mandrel's nose. 
in yes, that episode. Yeah, that's true. So the other thing is just uh, talking about how we um, she says you can't just take into uh, into account things like genetics to say why the Smurfs live the way they do, like one Papa Smurf with one female Smurf and lots of other little Smurfs running around. It could also be due to demographics. The Smurfs in the village may all be the same age due to other factors, societal issues such as war, baby boom, after a war, famine, disease, the distortions due to societal forces. So Papa Smurf may be looking after a large group of orphans. Perhaps a disease caused everyone to breed and then eventually killed all the females. Or like many human societies, perhaps young men are kept separate from larger society until earning adulthood while being taught how to be Papa Smurfs by Papa Smurf until passing the ritual ceremony that lets them grow a beard and leaves the isolated village. In this scenario, arriving by stork is another ritual signifying attaining sufficient maturity to enter the teaching village. There you go. Ah, so, so it's so it's kind of like the China one-child policy. Yes. In that yeah, it's like, right. oh, well, male Smurfs are much better than female Smurfs. So if now that we, what we'll do is we'll have a little Smurf abortion if we find out on the little <laughs> Smurf ultrasound yes. uh, that it's female, and then suddenly you've got all these uh, testosterone up young Smurfs who are desperate to put it about. Who, who are just like the blue bald monkeys. Just exactly like the right. blue bald monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think the point here to take is the um, is it may not be genetic. It could be it could be societal or social, which we didn't really get into, I guess. No, because much. we're a science podcast. What? Well, <laughs> steady, steady, <laughs> steady. But anyway, that was one from Janet. That's very good. Thank you, Janet. <laughs> we had a, a, our segment recently about you sending me back to Darwin in 47,000 BC. BC, yes. was quite popular. And I, said, oh, and I said, oh, well, I was on the beach when everyone turned up. A week after that got published, <laughs> we got some new information. Yes. I read this article and went, oh, Dan's going to get some emails. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. I found this one by oh. myself. Oh, wow, okay. So you should probably be walking and shaming me, but too bad I got there first. <laughs> well, it's just that more information came to light. It wasn't that, that you were wrong at the time. Oh, I was wrong at the time. I just didn't know I was wrong at the time. That's a cool thing about science. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't yeah. make me right. No, no, that's true, yes. But to, to your knowledge, you were right until science progressed enough that pointed out you were wrong. Yeah, well, to Trump's knowledge, climate change isn't happening. That doesn't no, no, stop the fact the, that it's... It's not the same thing. That's not the same thing at all. As in, there is a body of evidence that says climate change is happening and they're choosing to ignore it. You literally didn't know the information because no one knew the information at that point. Science had not worked it out. Well, they did. They hadn't written a paper about it at that point. The universe well, knew. Written, there there, there was an absolute no, truth. No. Oh, my God. Oh, no, no, no. Don't go there. Don't go subjective. To obje- oh, no. <laughs> It's a can of worms. Now, now we're now we're leaving the science podcast arena. Oh my god! Okay, yeah, objective to subjective reality. But again, the point is that there has been more evidence that Indigenous Australians have been in Australia indigenizing for a longer period of time than we ever thought before. At least sixty-five thousand years. Wow! So that's like that's like an extra eighteen thousand years on top of. So I turned up. They've been there for eighteen thousand years. Yes. Yeah. That's right. We're going, oh, God, there goes the neighbourhood. But it still doesn't stop me from making myself a hat out of kangaroo that's brains. True. That's true. I think the rest of it still holds. It just means that you wouldn't have been meeting them on the boat. They would have, they would have met you as you flashed into existence. Yes, which is how that's I cool. like to appear at all parties. <laughs> and there was one other thing that I, I picked up when I was editing the other day, is you, when the cassowary is mentioned, you've got a nickname yes. for them. Murderbirds. Murderbirds. Yes. And and I thought that that's really interesting. I'd like to know how many people have been murdered by a cassowary. 
I wonder what the deal is there. Oh, yes. It's not much of a murder bird, Greg. Oh, what do you base this on? It has only killed one person. One person that we know of. Look, if you're good at murder, no one knows that you're good at murder, so I've heard. <clears throat> they're not assassin. But I didn't say they were They're not out there making you dig birds. your own I grave. Didn't say they were grievous bodily harm birds. I said they were murder birds. So they, they can nip in and they can poison your drink and then they nip out and you die. Natural causes. No one ever thinks about it because you've been murdered. Yeah, you have changed tack quite quickly <laughs> to avoid going on a walk of shame. But it is only <laughs> a cassowary has only officially killed one person. There is another story that it did kill a, a zookeeper once, but there isn't a lot of support for that. So only right. one confirmed kill. And you're well, well, I mean, as you say, that is still murder. Like it did still kill a sixteen-year-old kid. Uh, this yeah, kid was yeah. trying to break up a fight between the bird and his dog, and it just stab, stab, stabby with his stabby feet. Wow! See, murder bird. Yeah. Well, what about it's, the? Uh, what okay, about? I'll, I'll, I'll accept. I will accept. It's not a murder's bird. It's oh, murder I see. Bird. I see. I see. <laughs> and, but it's the murder bird. It's the no, murder no, no, bird. No, no. Uh, why don't we talk about ostriches? Ostriches right. have killed their farmers on multiple occasions. They're they're the murder's birds. <laughs> they don't even need the stabby feet. They just stomp you. Uh, what they oh. do is they wait. They, they they stick their head in the sand. They wait till you have a look in the hole, and they hold your head in the hole. They like, get in the hole. Oh, <laughs> is that so? That story's come back a little bit garbled. Then I think so. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and also to our listeners, I know ostriches don't put their head in the sand. I know it's not a real thing. Uh, not so, literally. Yeah, but I mean maybe... they don't believe about climate change either. <laughs> I just worked out something though. Yeah. The murder birds. My murder murder bird. The, the, the murder bird, okay. Yeah. They're clever enough maybe to disguise themselves as ostriches and then murder. Oh, look, I have a giant flightless bird that's not a cassowary. I'll hold my crest. I'll murder someone, pretend to be an ostrich. Oh, I'm an ostrich. And then run away. You have a very good grip on those straws. I don't. I'm, like, I'm have, not listening. Okay. You've really clutched look, on. One day, one day... I'll be ready to fight off the murder birds, and you'll all thank me. Yeah, Listeners, yeah. you'll thank me. Are you ready for the beautiful mute swan? Beautiful, course, beautiful mute swan. It, 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 its very picture is the embodiment of romantic love. Aww. And in one case, a property caretaker was drowned after being pushed out of their kayak by mute swans. Mute swans working as a team. <laughs> That his own company has had established on the at the lakeside community, not even yeah. wild ones. These were the ones that they bought in, biting the hand that fed them. What about <laughs> well, what about the drowning the hand that fed them? Really, did they bite as well, or they just push him in? They just pushed him in. Yeah, there's no biting. It's, it's they just like they just sat on top of him, him, holding you down. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. What about the Lemurgia's vulture that picks tortoises up into the air and drops them to split them open? And one dropped one onto a human head and split the head open. Did it eat the insides then? Did it like race down and go, yay, two for one? The uh, story doesn't confirm that, um, being uh, that the story was from Greek legend. Uh, like, so uh, it's like maybe 4,000 years old. So, uh, um, so maybe slightly tentative there, but that is definitely a thing that the Lemurgia's vultures does. Can I point out that all these wonderful birds, they are all, you know, dinosaurs, so, well, they're all descendants of dinosaurs, so I'm still standing by the murder bird principle. So are you just saying all birds are murder birds? Is that what you're trying to well, say? Well, what I'm saying is why, why, why focus on the cassowary 
the cassowary and call, call the cassowary the murder bird when you've got the great northern loon, which is an 8 to 12 pound bird. Again, imperial. That's like 6 kilo bird. It possesses yes. razor sharp pointed bills that they use to spear their fish prey. Now, the lake pollution has caused declines in populations, prompting the scientists to place bands on the bird's legs and track their movements. And in one case, an ornithologist was mistaken for a predator by the loon and plunged its sharpened bill dagger fashion through the ribcage into the heart of the researcher, killing him instantly. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. (laughs) Wow. What about the European herring gull? Multiple (laughs) victims killed by the European herring gull. 1.5 1.5 kilos of yes. bird, tiny bird, could yep. kill a, uh, has killed a full-grown dog, killed it by swarming it. Uh, wow. An elderly man, man was mobbed by them and died of a heart attack. Well, that's not that's more the man, not more so than the birds. You know, you know, it's not like he did unless they unless they induced the heart attack with like some sort of injection when no one was looking. Like, you know, in, in the soles of his feet, like a cassowary would do. Oh, all right, all right. Well, what about something really innocuous, something really safe, something like, uh, say, a chicken? A chicken. Chicken, who, yes. Who knived a man and cut him open with a knife and the man bled to death. <laughs> Where did they get a knife? What, 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 did Where they go and check them for knives? Well, what the hell? Uh, not the, these ones. They're ex, are expected to have a knife on them because they it was an illegal cockfight. <laughs> oh, no. and uh, he was stabbed I, in the leg by the bird and bled out. Well, that, 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 look, that's fair enough. If you gave a pigeon uh, a nine millimeter pistol and it shot you, you shouldn't look surprised. You know what I mean? You're asking for trouble when you start arming animals. If you can train a pigeon to fire a handgun, yeah. you're allowed to call that the murder bird. Cassowaries can already do it. They already, they already are very, a, a well-equipped, can strip a rifle and reassemble it, oil it and reassemble it in, in under a minute. Bullshit. They're very, very... Can't very fire good. a gun without a trigger finger. They use their claws. That's why they, they have those, 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 like that raptory kind of thing at the front and they can hold it and they can fire it at you. You'd be surprised. You'd be very surprised. I'd be absolutely fucking flabbergasted. <laughs> If you hear us say something in the podcast, if you hear Greg say something that you realise is dumb, please do contact <laughs> Dan at smartenough.org. And inevitably, when Dan goofs again, get on to Greg at smartenough.org and we'll be able to throw in each other's faces in the name of science. And now it's time for a whole new segment called Questions from Alan, 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 Alan. We, we basically got an email from Alan with a question in it, so I just thought I'd, I'd pimp that. No, 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 you're building it up. It's good. It's good. Sizzle. Good. I like it. So oh, if I'm your aboard. name's Alan, make Don't sure explain you send questions from Alan, 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 Alan. And, uh, and Otherwise, we'll have to make an entirely new segment. Uh, and a whole new segment, and it won't be – I want this to become a long-running segment of questions from Alan, 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 Alan. And you've put so much time into that intro too. Like I, I'd hate to have to make new intros for every different person. So if oh. you do have a question and your name isn't Alan, please just sign the email Alan, please. Alan, yeah, that's right. Just like, like if your name's Trent, say Trent, uh, Alan, comma, Trent or something like that. Then we can go, Alan, 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 Trent. It'll be fine. Anyway, so question from Alan, Alan, Alan. <laughs> I'm writing this all the way to the This is supposed to be a short podcast. It was. It's really good. So um, a question from Alan. And Alan asks, uh, basically points out that he likes us a lot, which is very nice of you, Alan. And he was then wanted to talk about chadular bodies, which I really like the expression chadular bodies, basically stars. So stellar bodies. bodies. 
Stellar bodies, yeah. Stellar bodies. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's just decided to use the name Chan. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's 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 ridiculous. It's because the the the, the whole point was just to name something that wasn't already named. We have a name for stellar bodies. Chad is a stellar body. If you call them all Chadular bodies, then all you're having is one group of one star called Chad, or possibly also that moon that the people from the Nature Podcast called called Chad, just to make things murky and just to confuse the issue. But anyway, we're not we're not going to yell at our people who write in. It's not yell. Well, maybe Dan will, but we'll we'll go there. <laughs> Alan, 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 Alan. <laughs> the question was about neutron stars, saying with stars, stars burn, uh, well, burn, nuclear burn, uh, uh, hydrogen and helium and other things later on, and they use fusion. They fuse them together. All the protons get fused together, and then they become bigger and bigger elements, and they, in the end, they get up to iron, where it all goes horribly wrong. But they produce energy that way. So when you fuse things together, you produce a lot of energy. And that's why our star, that's why Chad actually shines, because it's it's fusing all these things together, and it's making energy. But his question was about neutron stars and saying, well, if neutron stars, which are, you know, like 20 Ks across or so, very, very dense, very, very dense byproduct of stellar explosions, so what the hell are they burning, nuclear burning? What's going on in them? Why do they shine? Which I think that's the basic question. The easy answer to this is heat. They're not burning anything at all, really. And I know that some astronomers listening are like, you're making a mistake, but hold with me. So this neutron star itself, it's just a whole packed in neutrons. That it got so hot, the pressure got so high when the, the star it was originally part of died that the electrons and the protons fused together and basically became neutrons. You a whole lot of neutrons packed in. Well, so well, really, hang, on, hang on, hang on. But the atoms in helium, for instance... They yes. have ne- neutrons in them, don't they? They do. Two neutrons, neutrons two and electrons. Protons. Yes. So yes. what two neutrons, two substance is the neutron star made out of? It's neutrons. Just, but but that's not on the periodic table. Neutrons are neutrons are parts of the makeup of of basically imagine a proton. So hydrogen atom is a one proton, one electron. Yeah. And so that's, and that's an it. outlet. So neutrons are like neutron, almost the same size, almost the same mass, but have no charge at all. So they're another fundamental force, a fundamental. Okay, so that, so it's not like this is made out of compressed helium. It's no, it's oh, but but could you? But you can pick it up in your hand. Yes, it's still a thing. It's got a physical, it's a physical thing. mass. Yes, yes. Elements are we base elements on numbers of protons, and so you have number of yeah protons. So one proton is hydrogen, two protons is helium, but then you also have two neutrons as well. So and if you have electrons that aren't connected to an element, then that's electrical power, right? You can have free flowing electrons. Yes. Yeah. So this is a, so a free flowing neutron isn't flowing. It's just a lump it's of. Not- Flowing. Could you it's, sweep it's physical, up. It's just I, I'm it's having mass. It's physical mass. It's it's a physical thing. It's it's just not an element. It's a neutron. So I, it, it's, it's but, a, it's so a I could neutral... sweep it up and put it in the bin. Yes, you could. It'd just be, in this case, though, a neutron star, you wouldn't be able to move it because it would. You know, a teaspoon weighs as much as a mountain because all the elements are packed together. So all the bits are packed together. So the neutrons are packed in very, very, very small. Into very, you have very blown tight. my yeah. mind. I didn't know. Okay, there you go. Excellent. Cool. So normally the normally the um, protons and the electrons won't even though the you know, one's positive one's negative they, they become if you have a, a non isotope you have a um, enough electrons to counteract the, the positive charge of the protons but literally it gets so pressure inside the star gets so high that those electrons and protons are joined together basically and, and a lot of energy is released then so you get these neutrons lots and lots of neutrons all together mm-hmm. so when they first made bang huge explosion uh, if it was the right size star it explodes if it was too big it turns into a black hole inside if it's too small it's a white dwarf it's just right 
right. The core is about three, I'm, I'm going from memory here, three to five times the mass of our sun, then it turns into a neutron star. This is just the core of the star. And now you've got this thing that's only 20 Ks across, roughly, that has the about three to five times the mass of our sun. So it's the size of a city, and it's more massive than our sun, has more stuff in it, because all the neutrons are pushed together and, and compressed together in, in really, really, really close. Okay. And some people even say that it's like a 20 kilometer across atom. It responds in a very similar way. So you've got a, a star the size of a city behaving like an atom. Wow. Which is a bit, yeah, it's crazy. They, and they're really massive magnetic fields. But now you've got a lattice, you want to think of it that way, of neutrons. And there's nothing else that can happen. Oh, there can be some other things. But there's not going to be any fusion. You're not going to fuse neutrons together. There's not going to be anything like that. They can't get any closer to each other. So really, the only thing that you can see if you're close enough to it is the heat given off. So when they're first made, they're millions of degrees Kelvin, Celsius. At this day, in this level, it doesn't matter. But they give off lots of neutrinos very quickly, and they cool down over a couple of tens of thousand years to you know, 600,000 to a million degrees Kelvin. So they're still really hot. Mm-hmm. But they'll set your broom on fire if you try to sweep them up. Well, that's right. Exactly. Exactly yep. right. So they're hot, and they're, but that's all they're doing. They're radiating heat out. That's all they're doing. So they're slowly cooling down over trillions and trillions of years. So you can't see them from Earth unless the one was really close. The visible amount of visible light they put out is actually very, very low because they're just radiating heat into space. And that's forever. infrared cool. light. Yes, well, heat, and that's right. And so visible light, black body radiation comes across the entire spectrum. So it's the whole, it's everything. So you would see oh, it right. in visible light as well, but it's, it's giving off light across the entire spectrum. But sometimes, if they're not alone, they can accrete material. So let's say they had a star near them, and they can actually get material from that star, and they yank it off, like gravitationally pull the other star apart, and it falls onto the surface of the neutron star. Mm-hmm. Well, then... You start that can actually start fusing. That hydrogen and helium from the other star on the surface of the neutron star will start to fuse together due to the intense gravitational force and start producing lots of X-rays and lots of high-energy particles ah. because of the fusion on the surface. So when we see them blasting away like pulsars spinning around, which is just a spinning neutron star, what we're really seeing is the stuff on the surface of the star emitting X-rays and emitting radio waves massively powerful from the surface of the star it's not the star itself producing them if that makes sense it's not happening internally it's something happening on the surface of the star from outside forces but basically accreting onto the surface of the star so we're looking at the byproduct of something falling onto the star so it's like a ninja but when they're eating you can see them eating and you can hear them eating and you yes. can see them throwing away their KFC wrappers. Absolutely, I think it's a good way of looking at it. Yes. So that's it. That's that was the that was the answer. That was the sorry, the question from Alan uh, that I wanted to answer. But he also has another question, which is one we can both go for, which just came like two minutes after the first question, not a follow up question. It says in Babylon five. When a ship needs to change direction, they rotate to face the direction they came from, fire up the engines and drop forward momentum. They then face the direction they want to go, fire up the engines again. This makes sense to me in terms of accurately depicting space-powered flight. So here's this question, which makes sense. So if you want to change in space, uh, you will always keep – thanks to Newton, we know that if you keep moving through space, then there's no forces acting upon you. You'll always just keep moving. You'll never slow down. You have to have a force acting upon you. So in space, you want to change direction. You've got to 
point in the direction you want to go and then blast in that direction. So you can't just slow down. Nothing's going to, nothing's going to be friction. Yeah. Make you stop. Yeah. You're not going to be like banking. That, and there's this question. So why does the enterprise bank to turn? Uh, now, I'm going to say a wizard did it. Maybe it's like in Futurama, how it stays in the same position, but it spins the universe around it. <laughs> well, I, I, I always figured if you wanted to suspend your disbelief a bit, you could say, well, it's not that it's banking. It's that the p- person creating the film is moving the camera in a way that makes it appear to be banking, uh, which gives a better idea for, for monkeys to understand what's happening rather than mathematicians. I would be fine with that. If you, if you were locked... If you, if you had locked the picture onto the background universe, then the Enterprise would move, would bank and bank away. If you locked the picture onto the Enterprise, the Enterprise would stay still, appear to stay still, and the universe would rotate in the opposite direction. So I'm wondering, I can't think of the pictures. When it banks, is it banking in respect to a locked universe view? Oh, well, if you're going to start complaining about the stars in the background, you're as bad as uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson when he watched Titanic. Just sit there and enjoy the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio died. That's just true. It's true. So I think people who know more about Star Trek than I do may say it's got something to do with um, subspace engines and that sort of stuff. So maybe it's maybe it's literally dragging on the universe or something like that. Unfortunately, I don't know how the... Uh, the, the engines on the Enterprise actually work. I mean, warp bubbles and that sort of stuff, I'm guessing maybe... Yeah. I feel like they maybe, don't sit in the realm of Newtonian physics. No, no, that's right. With the warp drive, it, if it, I think it banks. I think in the last uh, Star Treks I saw, the modern reboot Star Treks, I saw it like they're going through warp and they're being chased by a big ship in the background. I think this is the one that came before this, the last movie. It's one of the it's one of the new ones, anyway. The Enterprise is like going through warp at warp speed, and the larger ships coming up behind it, shooting, and the Enterprise is dodging the shots in warp speed. And I'm guessing at warp, maybe you could say that they're increasing the mass on one side and making the whole ship drag in another direction. But I don't really know. Let's just say a wizard did it, and and leave it at that. There aren't any wizards in Star Trek. What would I cue? He's like he's a he's a space wizard. I stand corrected. You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. Oh, so Greg at smartenough.org. You know what? This pay at Ford stuff, no one's like joining up to our Twitter anymore. Go for God's sake. Go along to Twitter and sign up to SE2KB. Like, the whole point of us not pimping it was to so that you'd be like, oh, yeah, these guys are good guys. I'll jump on board. It was all reverse psychology, you bastards. Just just <laughs> follow us. Just get on Twitter and follow us. Surely you want to know more. About- That's true. Tell people. Tell people about it. Tell people about it. Tell, yeah. people, tell one or two friends that you, you might enjoy this madness. And we'd Subscribe, love to hear- you sons of bitches. What am I? What am I busting my hump here so that you could just kind of occasionally listen to the podcast? Oh, I've had a gutful. And as we always like to say, I haven't even got into Facebook yet. Just get onto Facebook, Essie, to get me as well. Fucking pieces of shit that you are. Ungrateful sons of. We always like to say this. This is what we always like to say. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing very well. I've put on my professional voice now. I won't be using it in the podcast at all. <laughs> Ever. The golden tonsils are. That's right, right yes. <laughs> 
Monsieur Nutman. That is not his name. Do not call him that in the intro. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.